This is a season of hope, and I don't know if I have ever experienced a Christmas in my lifetime, and you may agree with me on this, where I feel like I've needed hope any more than I needed this year. And it's the hope of the promise, the hope of God's promise to us, as you just saw and you just heard, that God was going to send His Son, and in fact had sent His Son, in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that was a hope that wasn't just for way back then. It is a hope that we have and we can live with and live in today. We're going to be looking over the next few weeks at the hope that God gives us. It is hope for a living. Hope for living even in the midst of a pandemic. Hope for living even in the midst of turmoil. The hope that God gives us for living today. The hope of the promise that God gives us. If you have your Bibles, if you'll turn with me to Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40. And otherwise, it will, of course, be on the screen. My sermon outline is contained in your Rocky Mount Connection. And follow along with me if you would. The passage of Scripture we're going to look at at the 40th chapter of the book of Isaiah was written to the southern kingdom of Israel named Judah. And it was written during the time, as best we can tell, when the people were in exile. Over the last month and a half, I've been preaching messages from the book of Daniel. And we saw that Daniel was in Babylonian captivity with the nation of Israel for basically his entire life. Well, these folks now are going to be called out of captivity and out of exile back to Jerusalem and back to the nation of Israel. And this prophecy in the 40th chapter of Isaiah is a word of hope that is being given to the nation of Judah, that God is getting ready to bring them back from the exile, bring them back from the captivity that he has known, and he is comforting them with his promise. It is a comfort of promise that they are going to see, and they are going to experience the glory of Almighty God as he works among them. Now, Israel had been in captivity for so long that they essentially did not trust the promises of God anymore. They felt like God had abandoned them in Babylon, that he had forgotten about them, and you could not trust his promises. Have you ever been in a place in life that so much negative stuff seemed to happen for so long, and God seemed to be so absent that you just gave up after a while on the promises of God. Well, this is exactly where the nation of Israel found themselves. And what God is trying to say to his people here is that I have used exile to cleanse you so that you can live in my promises. I've used the experience of exile and all that you've been through to cleanse you so that now you can live in my promises. And when God takes us through seasons of discipline... It is never exclusively for the purpose of discipline. It is for the purpose of preparing us, cleansing us, so that He can bring us to the place of living in the reality of His promises and what He wants to accomplish in our lives. Isaiah's name means God is my salvation or Yahweh is my salvation. And again, he's speaking primarily here to the southern kingdom of Judah, we believe somewhere between 740 and 681 B.C. Isaiah chapter 40, beginning with verse 1. And many of you may recognize this because this passage of Scripture was made famous and well-known by Handel's Messiah. If I am correct, that tremendous piece of music opens with this passage of Scripture. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her welfare is ended and her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. 
a voice cries. Notice the repeated use of that verb. A voice cries in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Now let's reread that fifth verse again. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Now, God in this prophecy through Isaiah, speaking to this nation that is in exile, begins by saying, comfort, comfort my people. He double emphasizes it here to express the need that the people themselves felt to receive the comfort of God. Notice the first person plural pronouns that he's going to use. Comfort who? Comfort my people. Why is that so significant? Because he's trying to say, you're not Babylon's people. You are not Persia's people. You are my people. And even though you messed up and you sinned and I had to discipline you and send you into exile literally for decades, you are still my people. Says who? Says your God. He is saying, you can call me your God. The word there in the Hebrew language, which translated, the verb translated says, is, is the imperfect tense, which means you can keep on saying your God. I love that. Comfort my people, says your God. Keeps on saying God. God, in other words, is saying to them over and over and over again, I want you to be comforted. I want you to know that you're my people. You belong to me. And I am not ashamed to, before the world to be claimed as your God. You know, when you and I mess up and we blow it and we do it all the time, isn't it a comfort, isn't it an encouragement to know that God says to us, I still claim you, you still belong to me. I'm not ashamed of you. I'll set you up, I'll dust you off, I'll clean you up, and I'm going to put you back in the game, but I have not denied that you are my people and you can call upon me as your God. Claiming them. Verse 2, he says, speak tenderly to Jerusalem. The idea is he's going to bring the people back to the city of Jerusalem, back to their capital. And so he says, speak tenderly to Jerusalem. The word translated tenderly, or tenderly means speak to their heart. Work deep within them. He's saying, I'm going to seek to persuade you and invite you to respond to me. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Come alongside of my people. And I want to speak right into your heart, right in the center of who you are. And I want to call you back to me. What is he going to say to them? What is he saying to us? What is this hope of his promise? First of all, he says, your warfare is ended. The idea of the warfare being ended is that a period, a time, a season for them of duress has served its purpose. The purpose of bringing them back to the Lord. There is always a purpose in the discipline of God. There is always a purpose in the correction of God in our lives. He never disciplines us for the sake of discipline. The purpose is to bring us back to Him. And God is saying to His people here, I am bringing my discipline into your life and I have done it, but it's over with. 
and you're going to come back to me. The purpose has been accomplished, and I'm bringing you back to myself. Folks, when the Lord moves into our lives in discipline, the, our, often our reaction is to want to get mad with God, to reject the Lord, to force Him out of our lives instead of saying, God, what are you showing me? What are you trying to teach me? And what is your purpose? And His purpose is always to bring us closer to Himself. Then he says next in verse 2, her iniquity, that is the nation of Israel, your iniquity is pardoned. The idea of the iniquity and being pardoned there is it's like a debt has been paid in full. Your iniquity is pardoned. Your debt has been paid in full. Now in the 52nd chapter of the book of Isaiah, there is prophecy concerning the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it says in verse 6 of that chapter, Isaiah 52 and verse 6, speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore my people shall know my name. Therefore on that day they shall know that it is I who speak and I who am in here. And then in the 53rd chapter, it's speaking of the Lord Jesus. It says he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. You see, our iniquity has been paid in full. Not because we paid it in full, but because Jesus paid it in full on the cross. He could look at his people and through looking through prophecy into the future say, your iniquity is paid in full. Your sin debt is paid in full. Because Jesus was God's sacrifice provided by God to pay our debt. We used to sing a song years ago. I owed a debt I could not pay. We couldn't pay the debt of our sin any more than Israel could pay the debt of their sin. But Jesus paid the debt. He paid the debt in full. The Lord loved us so much that he gave the only one who could pay our debt, the Lord Jesus Christ, to die on the cross and rise again from the dead to pay the debt of our sin. Verse 2, he says, it's been double for all your sin. In other words, the punishment has matched the crime. Then notice in verse 3, again, prophecy of when Jesus is going to come. He says, a voice is crying, crying the promise of God's glory. A voice cries. It's trying to get your attention. The voice is saying, listen. A voice cries where? A voice cries in the wilderness. God's people had become a wilderness. Where they were in Babylon and later under the Persian Empire had become a wilderness. And God's saying the voice is crying in the wilderness. God is crying to his people in the wilderness of their captivity, in the wilderness of their exile. This passage is really sees fulfillment in the ministry of John the Baptist over, under Roman oppression. John comes out of the wilderness crying, prepare the way for the Lord. See, what God is trying to say to his people is the wilderness Barren, silent, hot, 
dry, miserable. Listen in the wilderness and you will hear my voice. Listen in the wilderness and I will be there. Listen in the wilderness and know that I will show up to take you to a new place. A voice crying in the wilderness. And what is it crying? Verse 3. Prepare the way of the Lord. Now in, those, in the ancient world, it was the practice to construct processional highways for visiting dignitaries. And that's sort of what the idea here is. God is preparing the way for himself, for his son to come. Verse 3. Make straight a highway for our God. It is to be a way that is straight, that is level, and that is free of any obstacles. In other words, he's going to accomplish his work without any difficulty and without any delay. Nothing is going to prohibit him from accomplishing the objectives and the work that he has set to. Notice verse 4. It says every valley is going to be lifted up. Every mountain and hill will be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. Now, it's very fascinating what he's doing because he's taking the physical geography of the Middle East, and particularly around Jerusalem and in the land of Israel, and he's using it as a metaphor to describe what he's going to do. We just saw where he says there's going to be a voice that's going to be crying in the wilderness, and it's going to say, prepare the way of the Lord, make the way of the Lord straight, and make it plain. Much of the Middle East is a dry desert. Much of around the nation of Israel is a dry desert. And he's saying in that dry desert of wilderness, you're going to hear the voice of God. You're going to see the work of God. You're going to see God coming, making a way straight. But then he starts talking about an entirely different terrain. And that is, he says, you've got mountains and you've got valleys. And the mountains are going to come down and they're going to fill the valleys and it's going to make it straight and plain. As you approach the city of Jerusalem from the east, there are a series of mountain ranges and valleys. And because it is so rugged, and because you've got to go up one mountain and come down and go through a valley, etc., it's difficult to get to the city of Jerusalem because the terrain on the eastern side of the city is so difficult. And so what Isaiah does is he basically reaches out and grabs the terrain east of Jerusalem and he says the mountains are going to fall down and the valleys are going to be filled up and that rugged terrain is going to be leveled out. You see, folks, what he's trying to say through the metaphor of the terrain there is that there is no terrain in life that God cannot get through to get to you and me. Every mountain that's out there, God can scale. And every mountain that's out there, if need be, God can knock it down in order to fill it up, in order for Him to get to us. He is trying to say through this passage of Scripture, listen, when Isaiah looks forward into history, when he looks forward into the future, when he sees the life and the ministry and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, and when he sees what God is going to do leading up to the ministry of Jesus, through the ministry of Jesus, and following the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is what we're in now, that God has set himself on what he's going to do, and no valley is going to stop 
him. No mountain is going to stop him. No pandemic is going to stop him. No election is going to stop him. No political turmoil is going to stop him. Nothing that we face in life is going to stop him. God is going to accomplish what he sets his mind to accomplish. We get all freaked out about what's going on in our culture today and we forget that the gospel of Jesus Christ was born in the middle of the oppression of the Roman government. They may have been celebrating in Bethlehem, but they were not celebrating in Rome when Jesus came. And that didn't stop him. He accomplished everything he set to accomplish with Caesar. No matter what the obstacles have been over the last 2,000 years, the gospel of Jesus Christ has moved forward because God determined that it would move forward. And we have been called to join Him in moving the gospel of Jesus Christ and His power, strength, and leadership forward. Now notice what it says in verse 5. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed. John chapter 1 and verse 14, speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ. It says, and the word, speaking of Jesus, became flesh and dwelled among us or moved into the neighborhood with us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Now, the scriptures talk a lot about the glory of God. What is the glory of God? What I'm going to do is I'm going to seek to give you a definition of the glory of God. And then we're going to watch how it gets played out. In a story from the book of Luke. First of all, it says the glory of God shall be fully revealed. Now the Hebrew word translated reveal here means something that has stark exposure. Nothing covers it up. Now I'm going to use a country term. And please don't think I'm irreverent, irreverent for it. Alright? But this idea of stark exposure. You could translate it. Buck naked. All right? That's my rough Hebrew tra- translation here, all right? When it says the glory of God is going to be fully exposed, what he's saying here is nothing is going to cover up or hinder the full and absolute expression of the glory of God. So when you and I look at the ministry, And the words of the Lord Jesus Christ, we have a full uncovering and expression of who God is. And what the glory of God looks like and feels like. And what it means to be touched by the glory of God. Now what is the glory of God? It's His presence. It is the experience of His honor, His majesty... And his abundance. The Hebrew word for glory literally means heavy. For example, in that day you could use the word to speak of someone who is heavily in debt. Which means they owe a whole lot. And this idea of the glory of God is that God is heavy with his honor. With his majesty. With the abundance of who he is, his grace, his mercy, his love, his holiness, his power. He's heavy with it. He doesn't have just a little bit of it. He is heavy with all that he is. The glory of God in Scripture speaks of God's presence manifested with his people. It is the felt reality of his divine potency. I want to say that again. It is the felt reality of his divine potency. In other words, when God shows up in his glory, people know it. 
People experience it. It changes. God's glory changes whatever it touches. That night outside of Bethlehem when the sky lit up with the angels and they were singing glory to God in the highest, those shepherds were changed that night. They were touched. They were affected. The heavens were heavy with the glory of God. Resurrection morning, 33 years later, that garden was heavy with the resurrection power of God. When Jesus walked out of that tomb, healed, powerful, full of life, and ready to change every life that he taught and he touched. Again, the idea of his majesty and his power touching and changing life. Notice verse 5. It says that all flesh is going to see the glory of God together. And the word there, see, is the double sense that they're going to see it, observe it, and they will experience it. I can't stress this enough. This idea of the glory of God is you don't just see it. You don't just talk about it. You don't just sing about it. You experience it. God's glory, His majesty, His power, the potency of it. You experience it firsthand. Have you ever eaten something that was filled with a potent flavor? I mean, it hit your taste buds and you knew you'd gotten a hold of it and you'd gotten a hold of it, but good. I love lemon. Anything that's got lemon in it. I love it. I don't know why I like lemon flavor so much, but I just love lemon flavor. And I love to get a hold of anything, a good lemon chest pie, hint, hint, that has... <laughs> Staring at some of our dear ladies that are sitting on the back pew and so forth. Uh, but a, a lemon chest pie that is lo loaded with lemon flavoring. And when you bite into that, man, that thing hits your taste buds and you know you have gotten a hold of lemon. That is the idea. You're not just at that point talking about lemon and theorizing about lemon and how much you like lemon. You got lemon in your taste buds, in your mouth. Man, you're thinking lemon, tasting lemon. It's just lemon, 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 okay? Well, the idea here is that the glory of God is not something we look at, we talk about. Is that when the glory of God gets a hold of us and we bite into it, so to speak, the glory of God fills who we are. It changes who we are. We know that we have been touched by Jesus and Jesus has touched us. We are changed because His glory has touched us and is impacting us. We are experiencing firsthand who the Lord Jesus Christ is. And it says in verse 5 that the mouth of the Lord has spoken this. In other words, God says, I'm going to do it. I don't have to depend on anybody else to do it. I don't need a king. I don't need a prince. I don't even need an angel choir. God says, I am going to get this done. Now, what does it look like for His glory to be revealed. See, I love preaching this, but most of us are not going to walk out of here and have to worry about bumping into angel choirs singing around us this week. Most of you are not going to bump into somebody who's been resurrected from the dead this week. If you do, could you please bring them next Sunday so we can get a testimony? I'd love that. So what we tend to do is we read the Bible stories, and we say, man, that's great. But I haven't bumped into any angel choirs lately. Like sometimes when I go to church and the pastor's in the choir and sings, it may be a choir, but sure ain't an angel choir that's up there singing. At least with his voice. Veryl Sheriff said amen under her breath when I said that. And we haven't bumped into any people being raised from the dead. So what in the world, how in the world are we going to bump into glory? Well, I want us to look at a story in Scripture 
Because the glory of God was every day in the life of Jesus. And notice it says here, all flesh shall see it together. The all flesh, everybody, wasn't just 2,000 years ago. We have the opportunity and a call from God to see and experience His glory today as much as they did 2,000 years ago in Bethlehem and Jerusalem, if we will choose to. But we got to understand what we're looking for when we see the glory of God. In Luke's Gospel, chapter 22, Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. He is in the process of being arrested. Luke 22, verses 50 and 51. And one of the them, which is the disciple, one of his disciples, which was Peter, struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. He touched his ear and he healed it. Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane got his 12 disciples with him. In particular, he's got Peter, James, and John. And the great high priest shows up with his servant, in other words, his slave, bond servant, and the Roman soldiers, and they're there to arrest Jesus. Now, I want us to get the scene here. The Roman government is in control. Caesar is a dictator, and the Roman government is extremely oppressive. Jews hated the Romans. They hated this oppression. Peter hates the Roman government. Peter for his day, is packing heat. He's got a sword on him. Would have been like a dagger. Now, he didn't show up in the garden that night with his sword by his side because he was into singing, let's all join hands and sing Kumbaya together. He was on the lookout for Romans. He was on the lookout. He sensed enough to know something was up to make sure he had his sword with him because he was going to be ready if any of those Jewish high priests showed up or any of those Roman soldiers showed up. He's packing heat and apparently he has attitude. Now Jesus referred to Peter and his brothers as the sons of thunder. So apparently those guys had quick hot tempers. Peter was impetuous He had a hot temper. We don't know exactly what all he was angry about. We do know, imagine this, that Peter was angry about politics. I know that's hard for us to fathom, but we do know that he was angry about politics. Because he hated the Roman government. And so he shows up that night. And the priest comes in. And the soldiers come in. And Peter knows what's about to happen. He is ticked off and angry already. He's got his sword on his side. Now, it says that he cuts off the right ear of the high servant of the priest. There was nothing to be gained by attacking the slave of the priest. Absolutely nothing. I think Peter was going for the high priest. I think his intention was to kill the high priest and to strike the nation of Israel, the the religious establishment in collusion with the Roman government at its very heart, I'll kill the high priest right here, and Jesus will be so proud of me. So he pulls his sword, and he lunges 
for the high priest. And probably that servant did what he was supposed to do. He jumps in front of the high priest. This guy is innocent of everything. And he feels this sword come up against his face. And watches in horror as his ear goes flying through the air. Can you imagine the tension in that garden? Everybody is expecting the Roman soldiers, no doubt, to go for their swords and the blood is going to start flowing all over the place. And Jesus steps into the middle of it within a split second and he yells out, no more of this. That is the first exhibition of the glory of God. No more of the hatred No more of the revenge. No more of getting even. No more of shedding blood. This stops right now. No more of this. And then Jesus takes his hand and puts it up beside the servant's ear. The Gospel of John tells us that servant's name was Malchus. Puts it up beside Malchus's head. Now think about if you were Malchus. Jesus' disciple just cut off your ear. What is Jesus getting ready to do with you? I would think Jesus is getting ready to punch me. There was something in Jesus' face and in his voice and in his eyes that caused Malchus to allow Jesus to touch him. Something down deep inside told Malchus, he's not going to hit you, he's not going to hurt you, don't know what he's going to do, but you can let Jesus touch you. Jesus did not say, Malchus, I'm going to heal you. He just touched him. Malchus did not ask Jesus, what are you going to do? He just stood there and let Jesus Touch him. Jesus did not speak any words. He just touched him with healing power. Oh, will you hear me this morning? So many of us are so frustrated with God because God won't speak to us. And God is trying to say to us, right now I don't need to say any more to you. I just want to touch you. You've got my word. You've got 66 books of my word. But you've got to let me touch you. You see, there are folks that come to church, watch it on the internet, etc. Week after week, and we hear the word over and over and over again. we got the word going in our ears, but we don't ever let Jesus touch us. Jesus seems distant, though holy, because we never let him touch us. He doesn't have to run his mouth To heal us. He doesn't want to run his mouth to touch us. We just got to let him touch us. And we got to trust him enough. To let him touch us. Jesus lays his hand on Malchus's face. Where that ear was cut off. Where Malchus is bleeding out. And he heals him completely. But if you've been standing there that night and watched the hand of Jesus as it came off of Malchus's face, you no doubt would have seen a hand covered in Malchus's blood. Malchus's face is healed. Jesus' hand 
is bloody from healing Malchus. You see, Jesus doesn't get freaked out because of our blood. Jesus does not look at our lives and say, you are such a bloody mess that I'm not going to touch you. Jesus does not look at us and say, somebody has cut into your life and cut up your life and ripped into you. And you are such a screwed up mess that I don't want to get involved. He says, I don't care how bloody you are with what you've gone through in life. I will place my healing hand into your life. One of the things that I love about the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, is Jesus would walk up to people who had leprosy, and he didn't let the leprosy keep him from touching them in the leprosy. If they were demon-possessed, he didn't run in the other direction. He walked up to them and touched them and confronted the demon spirits. If they were sweating, if they were bloody, if they had pulse and they stunk, etc. None of that held Jesus back. He walked into the middle of the pus. He walked into the middle of the sweat. He walked into the middle of the dirt. You name it, he walked into it. He rubbed shoulders with it. He touched it. He did not know how to practice social distancing. It has it for the last 2,000 years and never will. He walks up because he doesn't need social distancing because he's got all the power of God Almighty to touch and to heal and to restore. Many of us think that Jesus practices what I call psychological and spiritual social distancing from us. You were too sinful. You were too messed up. You were too screwed up for me to touch you and heal you. You were hurt too much. You've been messed up too much. Somebody has beat you up too much. You're not godly enough, religious enough, spiritual enough, whatever it is for me to touch you. Malchus wasn't getting touched that night because he was spiritual. He wasn't touched that night because he was important or rich. He was a slave. He didn't have any power in the garden that evening. Jesus had nothing to gain by healing him. Why did Jesus do it? Because Jesus loves people, period. And that's all he needs to know about you is he loves you, he died for you, he rose again from the dead, and he's got the power to heal you if you will just let him touch you. That is the glory of God. They saw the glory of God that night, both in a healed ear and with blood all over the hand of Jesus. That is the glory of God. That he says all flesh is going to see. Because God has determined to demonstrate his glory in that way. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you so much that you love us. And even, Lord, when we don't deserve it and we never have, your glory is fully revealed in the person of your son. Lord, we don't need to be looking for angel choirs to, to show up in the night skies of our lives. And Lord, we may look sometimes for stuff that's really spectacular, but you're trying to say to us, in the midst, Lord, often of the conflict around us, no more of this. It's going to know my peace in my presence. And you're trying to say to us, let me touch you. Be like Malchus. And just stand there. Look into my face. Listen to you say to the tone of my voice. And let me touch you and heal you. And Jesus, you don't freak out about what a mess we're in. And about how bloody you get in the process of cleaning us up. 
Oh God, thank you that the precious, holy, awesome hands of Jesus at times have had our emotional, psychological, spiritual blood all over them. And it didn't freak you out one bit because you love us that much. Lord, we bless you because of how awesome Jesus you are. With every head bowed and every eye closed, I want to give you a moment in prayer right now, not to say anything to the Lord, but just to sit there in silence and be totally open to the Lord Jesus touching your life. He may say nothing to you, but to let him touch you at the place of your need and the place of your hurt and the place where we need healing.